This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Oh, hi, it's Zach Peter, your new favorite pop culture guru, serving you the hottest tea three times a week. From the latest news on The Real Housewives, deep dives into celebrity legal scandals, unfiltered convos with your favorite stars, and of course, the latest from Vanderpump Land, I've Got You Covered. And new episodes of the podcast are now available in video on Spotify. And they don't just let anybody do video. But this Platinum Blonde has won them over. So if you want the latest news from the ultimate tea-spilling professional, tune in to No Filter with Zach Peter. That's No Filter with Zach Peter on your favorite podcast app now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. This month, we're just tackling some of my favorite movies. No real theme other than that. Last week, we talked about 2009 Star Trek. This week, we are talking about what might actually be my favorite movie western. It's a genre that I'm not as up on as I should be, but I love this movie, and it has taken on a lot of critical acclaim and gained a real following since it came out almost 30 years ago, and that is 1993's Tombstone, the story of Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, the Earp Brothers, the shootout at the OK Corral, and its aftermath. We're going to get down into the messy details behind the making of this movie, try to pick through it as much as we can, and talk about why it was so overlooked, especially by the awards and the critics when it came out. But first, if you are watching and or listening, I want to thank you for being a part of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube and you want to become an audio subscriber, you can find that link down there in the description below. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video version of the show, you can find it on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash movies. Appropriately for a movie that is about one of the biggest legends of the Old West, the shootout at the OK Corral, the story of the making of Tombstone has also been enshrined in Hollywood myth and legend and folklore. And this is largely due to the sad fact that two of the key players in the saga, writer Kevin Jar and credited director George P. Cosmatos, have both passed away. Jar passed away in 2011, Cosmatos in 2005. So what follows is the best representation I could find of the making of the movie Tombstone tombstone but as with all legends some of it may be fact mixed with a little fiction and there could be a few tall tales thrown in there as well Tombstone began as a screenplay from screenwriter Kevin Jar, who had won great acclaim for writing the movie Glory, which captured three Academy Awards, including a Best Supporting Actor Award for Denzel Washington. Jar was interested in telling the story of Tombstone, centered around the character of Wyatt Earp, but not really about Earp himself. It's about Earp and his brothers, their adventures in Tombstone, the shootout at the OK Corral with the Cowboys, one of the most notorious and earliest examples of organized crime, and the after effects of that shootout. So instead of of being really centric about one character, it was more about the events that happened in this Arizona boomtown. Kurt Russell gave an interview to the magazine True West in 2006 where he expounded on several details of the making of Tombstone, and he claims in that interview, and it has been backed up by a couple of other sources, that Jar was developing Tombstone originally with one of the most powerful and successful actors in Hollywood at the time, 
Kevin Costner. But Costner decided that he didn't want to do a script that was about Tombstone with the character of Wyatt Earp being more of just a character, the lead character, but also part of an ensemble. He wanted to do a movie that was just about Wyatt Earp himself that he could be the lead in. He decided to make his own Wyatt Earp project, which became the movie Wyatt Earp, directed and co-written by Lawrence Kasdan. The script was eventually sent to Kurt Russell, he claims, by one of his former agents, and he was very interested in the movie. He had been a longtime fan of Wyatt Earp, and according to several sources, including director George P. Cosmatos, Kurt Russell's son, Wyatt Russell, who has been seen on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier and so many great movies and TV shows, was named after Wyatt Earp. This was a historical figure that Kurt Russell was very interested in. So Russell took the idea for the project to producer Andrew Vajna. Vajna had very recently divested himself of his part in Carol Co. Pictures, which is the production company behind the Rambo films and Terminator 2, Total Recall, he had set up his own production company called Synergy, which was somewhat short-lived and only lasted about seven years, but Tombstone was one of their very first releases. Vajna agreed to bankroll the film for $25 million, and the decision was made that this would not only be Kevin Jarre's script, but that Tombstone would be his directorial debut. This was a decision that Kurt Russell says he backed at the time. But there was a problem, and that problem, according to Kurt Russell, Russell was Kevin Costner, who had a lot of influence in the town. He had just won the Best Director and Best Picture Oscars for Dances with Wolves. He was one of the biggest box office draws uh, in Hollywood at the time. According to Russell, Costner essentially shut off their avenues for distribution and production except for Buena Vista Pictures, which is the vision of Disney. Russell says that Costner essentially blacklisted the production from other studios around town because he didn't want competition for his own wider project that he was now developing separately. Is this true? Is this not true? I couldn't find any sources to confirm or disconfirm either way, so a lot of this comes from Kurt Russell himself. Russell also claims that the key supporting role of Doc Holliday was originally set to be played by Willem Dafoe, but once everything was set up with Disney and Buena Vista, it was decided that a more bankable star needed to be put in that role. Now, there was brief flirtation with the idea of Russell taking the role of Doc Holliday and another leading man, Russell says potentially Richard Gere, being brought in to play Wyatt Earp. But it was eventually decided that actor Val Kilmer, who was hot off of a critically acclaimed turn as Jim Morrison in Oliver Stone's The Doors, would come in to play the role of Doc Holliday. Good call. You're probably seeing double. I have two guns, one for each of you. To get the cadence of Doc Holliday, Val Kilmer worked with a dialect coach, and it was decided that the character would speak with a very aristocratic southern drawl. The issue with that was that there weren't a whole lot of people left that spoke with this kind of drawl. It was something that was around mainly in the pre- and post-Civil War South, but that you didn't hear much anymore. But once a reference was found, Kilmer realized pretty quickly that he was going to have to adjust the cadence and the authenticity just a bit in order to bring the character to the screen, as he told talk show host and comedian Tom Green back in 2006. The tape that he sent me, uh, the man spoke so slowly, we could have a baby before he finished his story. <sighs> and I, I couldn't speak this slowly because it never would have got, the movie would have been four hours long. Right, right. As Wyatt's brothers, Virgil and Morgan Earp, Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott joined the cast. As the evil Cowboys, Powers Booth was cast as leader Curly Bill Brocious, Michael Bean as gunfighter Johnny Ringo, and Stephen Lang and Thomas Hayden Church were cast as brothers Ike and Billy Clanton. 
Dana Delaney was chosen as Earp's romantic lead, Josephine Marcus, and the cast was rounded out with veterans including Michael Rooker, Jason Priestley, Billy Zane, Terry O'Quinn, legendary Western actor Harry Carey Jr., and in a small role that was trimmed due to reshoots, Charlton Heston as ranch owner Henry Hooker. During pre-production as director, one of Kevin Jar's biggest demands was authenticity. This came down to the design of the buildings, the type of wardrobe the characters wore, the way that they wore their guns, not too low on the hip, higher up for quick draw. He didn't want this to be just another Hollywood Western. He wanted this to be one of the most accurate Hollywood Westerns ever made. And this required extensive research done by everyone on the crew, including production designer Catherine Hardwick, who would go on to make a big name for herself as a director in the years following the film's release. I took the script and did a breakdown on all the sets and I went and visited the real tombstone and looked at like tons of research from the archives, the Arizona Historical Society and all over and then came out to this town which we were going to convert into tombstone and try to figure out how to overlay the matrix of the two and turn them into the same thing. This authenticity even extended to the extras in the movie. Many of them were known as buckaroos who were people that were not just brought in to walk around in the background but were actually knowledgeable, kind of a traveling pack of cowboy experts who didn't just want to walk around in the background, but knew how people talked, how they walked, what the dress was like. The intention was to make these not just background extras, but to appear as actual residents of Tombstone, complete with historic authenticity. And this authenticity was not lost on the stars of the movie. The buckaroos are out there 50 strong, living in tents, and when we're shooting nights, they're sleeping during the day in those tents. It's 115 degrees. You glance off and... There won't be any cameras and there won't be any lights and there won't be any crew people and you just see a couple of the extras and an actor two lounging up against one of these buildings. You, know, you see the mountains in the background and no telephone poles and it really takes you back. With sets constructed and a cast in place, production on Tombstone began in late spring of 1993. But according to many people, from the very first day of production, it was very obvious that Kevin Jar was in over his head as a first-time director. As to why this wasn't working, stories have ranged from different people involved in the film, from amateurish camera placement to not being able to manage the production schedule for such a big movie to not really even being able to direct the actors in the way that they should have been directed. Regardless of why, after a few weeks, it was decided that Kevin Jar was not the right fit for the movie and he was fired by the producers of the film. And on a weekend's notice, director George P. Cosmatos was brought in to replace Jar. Cosmatos was a veteran of movies like Cobra and Rambo First Blood Part Two, But here again is where the story of Tombstone diverges into myth and speculation. Because according to that interview that Kurt Russell did in 2006 with True West Magazine, the studio wanted him, Kurt Russell, Russell to take over the rest of the movie, but he didn't want to be the name both in front of and behind the camera. So he agreed that George P. Cosmatos would be brought in essentially as a ghost director to be the director of the film in name only, but that Russell himself would really be in charge of what was going on on set. Here's what he told True West Magazine, quote, I said to George, I'm going to give you a shot list every night and that's what it's going to be. I'd go to George's room, give him the shot list for the next day. That was the deal. George, I don't want any arguments. This is what it is. This is what the job is. Russell also claimed that this was essentially a secret agreement that he promised Cosmatos he would not speak about while Cosmatos was still alive. As I mentioned, Cosmatos died in 2005. Kurt Russell did this interview in 2006. Russell also says that he oversaw over 20 pages of cuts to the screenplay of the movie, which included mainly cuts to his own character of Wyatt Earp in order to let the supporting cast of the movie help carry more of the burden. 
In a blog post on his website a few years later, Val Kilmer seems to confirm some of what Russell says, although not going so far as to say that he was actually directing the movie. This is what Kilmer said, quote, I watched Kurt sacrifice his own role and energy to devote himself as a storyteller, even going so far as to draw up shot lists to help our replacement director, George Cosmatos, who came in with only two days prep. I have such admiration for Kurt as he basically sacrificed lots of energy that would have gone into his role to save the film. Everyone cared, don't get me wrong, but Kurt put his money where his mouth was, and not a lot of stars extend themselves for the cast and crew. Not like he did. In the 2006 interview he did with Tom Green, however, Kilmer does seem to confirm the fact that Cosmatos was largely a technically-minded director and left the actors to fend for themselves. And he wasn't really... I, I, I love him, he's passed on now, George Cosmatos, but... He wasn't a big reader. He was a shooter. So it was really dramatic to have a guy who didn't quite really get the story uh, come in to actually make that movie. Uh, there was only a couple minutes left that Kevin actually filmed. Cosmatos, in his commentary track for Tombstone, currently the only commentary track available for the film, seems to acknowledge that it was difficult to navigate the different personalities on the film and also talks about why he likes to work with the same people over and over. Nobody knows each other. You walk in a movie and everybody, most people don't know each other. It's like walking in a minefield. So you have to know how to walk around the minefield without having anything explode. That's the whole secret. So that's why sometimes it's better to use the same people you know, so the mindful becomes less dangerous. So let's jump into the movie itself, which starts with narration from one of the most iconic stars of Hollywood's golden age, Robert Mitchum. Cattle drovers turn cow towns into armed camps with murder rates higher than those of modern-day New York or Los Angeles. It's great to hear Mitchum's voice, but he was originally intended to have a much bigger part in the movie. He was intended to open the film as the character of Old Man Clanton, who was to start the movie as the leader of the Cowboys. However, Mitchum was injured in a horse riding incident and was not able to take part in filming for the movie, and the screenplay was changed. The wedding massacre that opens the film shares a lot of writing with the original opening of the movie, which took place in a canyon. But the key difference here is that in the existing version of the movie, it is Powers Booth's Curly Bill that is the leader of the Cowboys, not Robert Mitchum's character of Old Man Clanton. They call me Curly Bill Brosis. I'm what you might call the founder of the feast. For Powers Booth, it was important not just to play the menace of Curly Bill, however, it was also important to show the character's gregarious side, which was a key factor in him gaining and maintaining power in the Old West. Curly Bill was a guy that I mean, basically everybody liked him. He had a lot of dash about him, a lot of panache, and uh, he would go into bars and buy drinks for the whole place. I mean, he certainly got his mean streak and his killer streak, but it was a sympathetic quality to him as well. The opening scene also establishes Michael Bean's Johnny Ringo, a true psychopath with a reputation that precedes him. Look, darling, Johnny Ringo. The deadliest pistol since Wild Bill, they say. Bean appreciated Ringo's notoriety because he believes it gave him more freedom to choose how he wanted to play the character. The way the script is written, there's a lot of people talking about Ringo, how crazy he is. And as an actor, if I have the rest of the cast telling the audience how dangerous I am, then I don't have to walk around with a chip on my shoulder. You know, the worst thing to do when you're playing a bad guy is to play a bad guy. You just... You're playing who you are and your actions kind of speak for themselves and uh, people can decide whether those are bad actions or not bad actions. 
Next, we meet Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell, a retired lawman who's moving to Tombstone with his wife, Maddie, to seek fortune in the mining boomtown. And we can see from the very first scene of the movie that this version of Wyatt Earp is a tortured man looking for peace and quiet in both body and soul. Never saw a rich man didn't wind up with a guilty conscience. I already got a guilty conscience. Might as well have the money too. Wyatt meets up with his brothers Virgil and Morgan and their wives and the six of them look to start a new life as a family. Somebody who's nearing the end of his life is Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday who's in the late stages of dying from tuberculosis. And can I just say that Val Kilmer is so good in this movie as Doc Holliday. I know that's not news. I know that's not a revelation. But he is amazing. It might be the best Val Kilmer performance in any movie. And he's put in some great performances over the years. You know, Ed... If I thought you were my friend, I just don't think I could bear it. We first meet Doc Holliday as he wears out his welcome in a nearby town, and I'm just going to warn you that, like, probably a third of this video is just going to be me cutting to lines of Val Kilmer saying awesome things. There. Now we can be friends again. A couple things that I want to call out. One of them is the cinematography of William Fraker. Fraker was a veteran of movies like Rosemary's Baby, Bullet 1941, and War Games. He really captures the picturesque beauty of the American West in this film. Also, the music by Bruce Broughton is a really great score. He's been responsible for scores for movies like Homeward Bound, Harry and the Hendersons, Lost in Space. But this is truly one of the great Western musical scores of all time. Once Wyatt arrives in Tombstone, he makes an immediate impact by running out an aggressive dealer who's keeping people out of one of the local saloons slash casinos. This dealer is played by Billy Bob Thornton three years before his breakout role in Sling Blade. And in the DVD commentary for the movie, Cosmato says that Thornton brought his acting chops to bear in the movie through improvisation. We have Billy Bob Thornton who came as a favor to do a small scene. Kind of nice in here. And it was like... He didn't have to say much, so I told him, invent whatever you want, just be a bully. Christ almighty, it's like I'm sitting here playing cards with my brother's kids or something. You nerve-wracking sons of bitches. This scene is also one of the best Kurt Russell scenes of all time, where he intimidates Thornton through the use of no weapons, just a glare, and some really good dialogue. Go ahead, skin it. Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Oh! something or just stand there and bleed shortly thereafter Wyatt reunites with his friend Doc Holliday who has arrived in Tombstone and it was clear to everyone involved that one of the key components maybe the biggest component of the film was the Doc Wyatt relationship this film as you will see as it progresses is the love between two men two strong men between White Earp and Doc Holliday it's the bond of these two men that was what the most interesting thing in this movie for me it shows how they go through all kinds of dangers and all kinds of hazards and they stick together and they're like in loyalty and friendship. Kilmer's performance on screen was so engrossing that Sam Elliott, who plays Virgil Earp, has said that he had trouble separating the casual person he knew off screen from the character he was playing on screen. You see Val walking in and out of here with a straw hat and a pair of Bermuda shorts and a pair of thongs on at night. 
when he comes out of that trailer with that pallor and he's sweating and he's got all those clothes on and packing those guns, it's a different man. With the Earps establishing themselves in Tombstone, we then spend some time with the storyline that I think really doesn't work in the movie. I, I'm all right acknowledging things that don't work in movies that I love, and that is the romantic subplot with Josephine Marcus, who's played by Dana Delaney. She arrives in town as part of an acting troupe that also includes Billy Zane. And hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks who fought with us. Upon St. Crispin's Day! I think this relationship was sacrificed as part of the cutting down process for the film, both at the script phase and in the editing room. Uh, but even given that, it's just the element of the film that works the least for me. First of all, it seems superfluous to a lot of what's going on. It seems like there's a there's one real story that's driving the movie, and then we sort of cut away to the side thing. It doesn't really weave in with everything else. We also have the historical accuracy of Wyatt already being married when he meets Josephine. And even though his wife, Maddie, is a laudanum addict, which is basically a headache medicine made of opium, uh, not great stuff. Medicine was not great back in the Old West. It still doesn't quite jive because you don't know how to to feel you're not really rooting for these two because you don't really want to root for Wyatt to cheat on his wife it's a very weird thing I think this is where the commitment to historical accuracy might have hurt the film because they could have either left the character of Wyatt's wife out of the movie and thus made it a little more clear to pursue this romantic storyline or they could have left the character of Josephine out of the movie and just not acknowledge that part and focused a little more on Tombstone but I think this is an approach where the holistic historical accuracy and telling the whole story hurt the overall movie because the storylines get a little muddled. I want to move and go places and never look back. Just have fun forever. That's my idea of heaven. Things escalate when Curly Bill shoots and kills the town marshal while high on opium. This leads to a confrontation with the Earps where they get on the wrong side of Clanton brother, Ike Clanton, played by Stephen Lang. Your friends might get me in a rush, but not before I make your head into a canoe. You understand me? He's bluffing. Let's rush him. No. Despite these acts, Wyatt is still determined to keep his commitment to a life of peace and quiet. He doesn't want to get back in the law enforcement game, but his brother Virgil, who's racked by a guilty conscience, takes the job of town marshal and deputizes their other brother, Morgan. I walk around this town and look these people in the eyes just like someone slapping me in the face. These people are afraid to walk down the street, and I'm trying to make money off that like some goddamn vulture. There's also a great exchange here between Kurt Russell and Bill Paxton as Wyatt tries to impress upon Morgan the gravity that comes with being a peace officer. But a man lost his life, and I took it. You don't know how that feels, Morgan. Believe me, boy, you don't ever want to know. Not ever. And this is where things begin to spiral even more out of control. Doc Holliday begins hitting the booze and the cards even harder, seriously endangering what little is left of his health. Been hitting awful hard, haven't you? Nonsense. I've not yet begun to defile myself. And the Earp brothers continue to clash with the Clantons, with Ike Clanton vowing revenge after being thrown into the town jail following a drunken encounter with Virgil. You're gonna bleed. You got a fight coming. Coming today. I'll continue this breakdown of a modern Western classic in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain 
one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway. And it's something that can keep me going throughout the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing, and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now, this is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas, and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy. It's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free, and it's more affordable than traditional therapy, and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today, and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All my movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show.
We're gonna have cowboys coming around looking for trouble from here to Christmas. You want to risk all that over a misdemeanor? Damn right I'll risk it. They're breaking the law. With the Cowboys now flaunting a new town ordinance which prohibits the use and carry of firearms in town, Virgil decides that it's time for a confrontation. Wyatt is deputized to help his brothers, and he tries to keep Doc Holliday out of the carnage, which leads to a great exchange between friends. It's not your problem, Doc. You don't have to mix up in this. That is a hell of a thing for you to say to me. And then we get to the famous shootout at the OK Corral, which when you look at history wasn't actually at the OK Corral, but that's probably a different video. And some really iconic badass walking down the street shots. This sequence was originally a bigger part of the film, the build up to the OK Corral, but studio executives felt that it gave the movie too much of a climactic feel given that the action was going to continue past the shootout, and so it was trimmed down according to director George Picasmatos on his commentary track. The walk to the OK Corral was too long. I had the great shots of these people walking and shadows on the ground, you know, all kinds of angles. And then I discovered it made it look like it was the end of the movie. So I used them at the end like a curtain call for the movie from the scenes that I shot from the OK Corral. The gunfight at the OK Corral is reportedly fairly close to what actually happened historically, including this exchange between Doc Holliday and one of the cowboys. I got you now, you son of a bitch. You're a daisy if you do. It's reportedly also historically accurate that Wyatt Earp did not move that much during the exchange, a gunfighting style that only enhanced his legend. Everybody in the OK Corral basically moved and tried to get to a different position to, to either not be hit or, or to hit the other guy, except for Wyatt Earp. He literally stood on one spot. The guys who lived in that time who knew Wyatt Earp, they all said the same thing, that he was uncommonly cool under, under fire. He didn't have a sense of panic about it. Despite three cowboys dying and two Earp brothers being injured, this is generally where a lot of movies about Wyatt Earp and Tombstone end with the gunfight at the OK Corral. It was the fact that the movie went beyond well-known history that was one of the things that attracted George P. Cosmatos to coming in and directing the project. I think the, the OK Corral, that was in the script, but I think the OK Corral not happening at the end was a great idea because we want to know what's the aftermath of the OK Corral. The OK Corral was not the end of something. It was the beginning of something. And that's what I like about the script, was that it was the beginning. The Cowboys swear vengeance on the Earp Brothers and Doc Holliday, with Johnny Ringo taking particular offense. What do you want, Ringo? I want your blood. I want your soul. I want them both right now. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your huckleberry. That's just my game. Following the gunfight, the Cowboys retaliate, first with an attack on Virgil, which leaves him permanently without the use of his arm, then with the murder of Morgan, who's shot while playing pool by one of the Cowboys. This sequence gives Bill Paxton something that a lot of actors want, but very few can pull off, a good death scene. Remember what I said about seeing a lot when you're dying? Yeah. Yeah. Ain't true. I can't see a damn thing. This is such a good sequence that I have to actively ignore every time I watch the movie. What is one of the most glaring mistakes in this movie, or any movie? After Morgan dies, Wyatt stumbles out into the street, into the pouring rain, but it's very obvious that they either only had one rain machine or the rain machines down the street weren't working because it's very clear that it is raining only in Wyatt Earp's general vicinity. This is a very localized rainstorm. It's one of those little things with movie magic that you wish wasn't there, but you just have to either choose to overlook or let it bother you forever. And I like so much of this movie that I'm not going to let it bother me forever.
It still does bother me a little bit, though. What follows is one of my favorite badass moments ever. First, Wyatt plays the sad sack, leaving town and stopping to settle things with Curly Bill. I want you to know it's over. Well. Bye. Then when Curly Bill sends Ike Clanton and one of the cowboys after the herbs to finish the job and kill them all, we get one of the best out-for-revenge moments in cinema history as Kurt Russell slash Wyatt Earp declares all-out war on the cowboys. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. The cowboys are finished, you understand me? I see a red sash, I kill a man wearing it. So run, you Kurt. You tell him I'm coming! And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! This kicks off what was known as the Earp Vendetta Ride, where Earp, Doc Holliday, and some associates tracked down the cowboys that were remaining. And of course, it's enhanced a little bit for this movie and has passed into Western legend. But in the movie Tombstone, it culminates in a shootout at a creek where Wyatt, seemingly unfazed and unable to be shot, stands in the middle of a creek and takes out Curly Bill. Son of a bitch! No! Following the shootout, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, one of Earp's fellow writers, sees the terminally ill Doc Holliday and asks why he's putting himself through this, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie. Doc, short of being dead, what the hell are you doing this for anyway? Why up is my friend. Hell, I got lots of friends. I don't. With Doc's condition worsening, Wyatt and the other writers take him to a nearby ranch, which is run by a man named Henry Hooker, played by Charlton Heston. And this is such a comically outsized role for Heston. He is barely in this movie. It doesn't seem to be a role that fits a screen legend like him. The reason why may be that these scenes were reportedly largely shot by Kevin Jar. This was part of the first month of filming, and most of them were deemed unusable. Don't worry. They want him, man. Gotta come over us first. The unintended result of this, however, is that every time I watch Tombstone, I'm reminded of the movie Wayne's World 2, which features a scene where they bring Charlton Heston in to replace a minor actor in the movie in order to get a better performance. Do we have to put up with this? I mean, you know, can't we get a better actor? I know it's a small part, but I think we can do better than this. Gordon Street. Oh, yes. Gordon Street. I once knew a girl who lived on Gordon Street. But Doc Holliday is not as sick as he seems. When Wyatt leaves to fight Johnny Ringo to the death, Doc runs ahead of him and decides to confront the legendary gunslinger himself. I didn't think you had it in you. I'm your huckleberry. Why, Johnny Ringo. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. In several appearances on the convention circuit, Michael Bean has named the moment when he, as Johnny Ringo, decides to accept Doc Holliday's challenge to a gunfight as his personal favorite moment of his own career. All right, Lunger. Let's do it. Of course, Holliday wins the gunfight, killing Johnny Ringo and chopping the head off of the Cowboys. I'm afraid the strain was more than he could bear. Shortly thereafter, the Cowboys are defeated and disband, and the Earp Riders separate, but Doc and White are reunited one last time in Doc Holliday's final minutes as he lays dying in a sanitarium. Say goodbye to me. Go grab that spirited actress and make her your own. Live every second. Live right up the hill. Live for her. Live for me.
I've often contemplated the meaning of Doc Holliday's last words as he looks at his own bare feet. I'll be damned. This is funny. In his commentary for the movie, George P. Cosmato says that it was an expression of Holiday's surprise that despite the fact that he had such a live fast, die young attitude spurred on by his tuberculosis diagnosis, that he was dying such a low key death. He, he says, oh, I'm damn, that's funny. And he looks at his legs, his feet, and he has, wears no boots. So in other words, he, we always thought he would get killed in some gunfight in some town, in some street. And he's dying it. He's dying really in bed. He died without his boots on. Following this, Wyatt finally embraces his romance with Josephine, and we learn via voiceover that his wife Maddie died of a drug overdose, and the two of them dance into the credits. And while I'm not a huge fan of that storyline, I do like the ending of this film, mainly due to the narration that ends the movie, which shows just how much Wyatt Earp meant not only to the Old West, but to the first generation of movie actors who would largely be responsible for canonizing the legend of Wyatt Earp into the collective consciousness. Among the pallbearers at his funeral were early Western movie stars William S. Hart and Tom Mix. Tom Mix wept. Jar's screenplay, which was already cut down during shooting, received even more cuts in the editing room as the movie was taken down to a length that the studio found acceptable. And in the commentary for the film, you can hear that director George P. Cosmatos was not always happy with the final cuts that were made. I find that this scene could have still been, been better, but because of the cuts, I had to jump whole things of dialogue here, so it's a bit dodgy. We were cutting a lot of scenes out because we were over two hours and ten or something. And there was a ruthlessness that took place. It would be an understatement to say that Tombstone had the reputation as a troubled production. The competing Kevin Costner project and everything that came with it, the fact that Jar was fired, the reports from set of chaos. The chips were stacked against this movie, and despite the fact that it beat Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp project to the theaters by about six months, Disney did not really herald the release of Tombstone at the time. They say every town has a story. Tombstone has a legend. Justice is coming to Tombstone. Tombstone opened on Christmas Eve 1993, which is a prime award slot for a movie that has a performance like Val Kilmer's that should have gotten awards buzz, but Disney didn't even show the movie to critics. Siskel and Ebert didn't review Tombstone until late January 1994, spurred by word of mouth that Ebert heard on the street. We didn't review Tombstone when it was released late in the holiday season because we couldn't get a screening in time to include it on the year's last review program. So... We thought we'd have to give it a pass, but then a strange thing started to happen. People started telling me they really liked Val Kilmer's performance in Tombstone. I heard this everywhere I went. When you hear that once or twice, it's interesting. When you hear it a couple of dozen times, it's a trend. And when you read that Bill Clinton loved the performance, you figure you'd better catch up with the movie. And that's what I did a couple of days ago. I knew going in that Tombstone had a troubled history with the first director getting fired and the screenplay undergoing rewrites during shooting. But what I wasn't prepared for was what a strong and effective movie emerged from all of that creative chaos. 
It was obvious that Disney had no faith whatsoever in Tombstone, but it became a financial success anyway. It grossed over $50 million, more than doubling its production budget, and Kevin Costner's more high-profile Wyatt Earp project, which was budgeted at $60 million and ran at over three hours, made half as much as Tombstone and was a financial failure. But while Tombstone had a happy ending at the box office, the die had been cast for Kilmer's performance and the critical acclaim and awards that it should have generated. People talk retroactively about the Oscar snub for Val Kilmer and Tombstone, but it wasn't just the Academy. He was overlooked by every critics group and every award-giving body for the entire year, except for one. If you listen to this show, you'll know that I'll often reference an awards show that I watched a lot as a kid that somehow also seemed to get things right when all of the other awards shows got it wrong. I'm talking, of course, about the MTV Movie Awards. The only two nominations that Tombstone received from anybody were the two nominations that Val Kilmer got at the MTV Movie Awards for Best Male Performance and Most Desirable Male. Val Kilmer, Tombstone. Not revenge, Sadly, Kilmer would lose both awards, one of them to Tom Hanks, Best Male Performance in Philadelphia, and Most Desirable Male to William Baldwin in the movie Sliver. Times sure change, don't they? But the great thing about the cinematic canon is that it's not determined by box office or critics or awards. They often play a large part. It's determined by the people who watch the movies. It's determined by the audience. And in the years since Tombstone's release, it is now seen as one of the best modern westerns. And Val Kilmer's performance is recognized for the brilliant performance that it is. I first saw Tombstone on VHS because my mom bought it for herself. Tombstone was one of her favorite movies. And she was the person that I first heard about Val Kilmer performance in the movie from. This is a great example of how one generation can hand a movie down to another generation. When I was old enough, probably not 17, but 14, 15, I finally watched the movie and I became a fan of it myself. Later, I owned the original 1997 DVD edition of the movie. It was such an old copy of the movie that when I got an HDTV and tried to watch Tombstone, it was still formatted for 4x3. So it was widescreen inside of a 4x3 format. It was just a little rectangle in the middle of the screen. Later, I upgraded to the 2010 Blu-ray edition of the film, and I'm really hoping for the 30th anniversary of the movie, which is coming up in a couple years, that we're going to get a great 4K restoration, maybe with some of the footage that was cut out of the film. Kurt Russell has said that this could have been the godfather of westerns, and he's also said that he has access to a lot of the footage that was cut out of the movie. The Blu-ray puzzlingly doesn't have George P. Cosmatos' commentary. That is only on the director's cut edition of the DVD that was released in the early 2000s, but it does have a making-of documentary about the movie, including an endorsement of Kurt Russell's performance as Wyatt Earp from Wyatt Earp III. Everyone agreed to do this because they wanted to recreate the history the way the closest way they possibly could to how it actually happened. I think Kurt Russell is probably going to go down in history as playing the best Wyatt Earp ever played because it shows the human side of him. We also get to hear Kurt Russell's assessment of the tenuous place that the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday hold in history. If the Cowboys had won that fight, if the Earps had been killed there, if Wyatt Earp had shot at Ike Clanton, who was unarmed, I think the Earps would have gone to jail or been hanged. And uh, the Clantons would, would have come out, you know, history would have painted them the heroes. The disc also includes some director storyboards and the movie's theatrical trailer. 
I actually had to seek out Cosmatos' commentary online just to listen to it because I wanted to use it in the show. And it is actually a pretty entertaining commentary in the sense that he gives a lot of insight into the making of the film, his experiences, the sets, etc. But it also fights back a little bit against the narrative that you heard from Russell and Kilmer, that he was just a journeyman, that he didn't really care about the movie that he was making. You can hear in almost every aspect of this commentary just how passionate a filmmaker George P. Cosmatos was and how much he cared about the movies that he made. If you don't love movies, you should be out of them. I'm not doing movies like I'm fixing a car or waiting in a restaurant. I'm doing movies with love. And if you cannot do it with love, it's better not to do them. And that wraps up my look at Tombstone. Thank you so much for watching this look back at one of my favorite modern westerns, and as I said, maybe my favorite western of all time. I'll be back next week with a look at another one of my favorite movies. Until then, if you're watching this on YouTube, please consider becoming an audio subscriber. You can find the link down below in the description. And if you're listening to us, I would love for you to come check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Movies, which has not just this show, but things like reviews, charts, show reviews, you name it. We're doing a lot of fun stuff over there, and I'd love to see you there. I'll be back next week with another great movie, but until then, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks for watching.